Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And what a blessing it is for us to be together this morning in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. To those of you that are visiting with us in person or online, we welcome you. Uh, we're glad you've joined us for worship. We look forward to getting to know you. And one way you can help us do that, help us to get to know you, is by scanning the QR code. It's either in the bulletin or on the screen. Uh, and if you'll complete the digital connection card down at the bottom of the page, that would really help us to start getting to know you. There's a few ministry opportunities I want to pass along for you, uh, congregation. Our monthly business meeting is tonight at 6.30. And as a member... It's your right, your privilege, and your responsibility to attend these meetings and participate. So uh, please make every effort to attend. Uh, From a schedule standpoint, uh, there's uh, only prayer meeting this Wednesday. Uh, There's no youth meeting. Uh, And then also you'll notice in the bulletin that there's an invitation to a gift card baby shower for Nathan and Elizabeth Tyson uh, for their baby boy. Um, And that's the daughter of Sarah Franklin. That'll be next Saturday, this coming Saturday at 2 o'clock. And the fellowship hall. If you uh, need need more information about that, Barbara, can they talk to you if they need more information about that? Okay. All right. Are there any other announcements we need to make at this time? All right. Then we'll have our call to worship. I'd ask you to go ahead and stand for our call to worship. Um, if it's not underlined, I'll read it. You come in when it's underlined, which will be on the next slide. This is Psalm 59, 9 through 11. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's stand and worship together. Oh, we are already standing. Let's worship together.
my mother. Um, when mother uh, passed, the five of us all got together to plan her service. Um, and so the pastor and the musicians were saying, you know, what, what were her favorite songs? Well, guess what? All five of us had a different song. <laughs> and I have, I have praised God for that for all these years because Mama didn't have just one favorite song. She loved them all, and it was hard for us to decide. But in my mind, this was one of Mama's favorite songs. So I want to sing it for you this morning.
Well, it is Mother's Day today, and uh, you may not know where Mother's Day got its start. There was a lady by the name of Anna Jarvis who began a campaign to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday in the U.S., Uh, and it started when her mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, passed away in 1905, so over 100 years ago. Uh, Miss Jarvis held a memorial for her mother at the St. Andrews Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. She just had this sense that mothers were sacrificing more for their children than any other person in the world. In 1908, she pitched her idea to Congress, and Congress rejected the idea. But later on in 1914, Woodrow Wilson signed a proclamation designating the second Sunday of May as a national holiday to honor all mothers. Well, we don't just need a... uh, It's not uh, the the government alone that makes this proclamation that we ought to honor our mothers. The Bible gives great honor to mothers. Uh, Quoting from the Ten Commandments, Paul uh, says in in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That Greek word for honor is the word tamao, and it simply means to assign great value, to revere. And we're commanded in Scripture to love, to honor, to value, to revere our parents, and more specifically, our mothers. And God even adds an incentive to our obedience. He promises uh, it will be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So this morning, instead of maybe extolling the greatness of motherhood, which I do believe is true. Um, I want to challenge all of us to honor our mothers and to understand what it means. First of all, honoring your mother doesn't mean that you wait until your mother's perfect. Because if you do that, you're going to be waiting a long time. uh, Because your mother is imperfect and flawed and fallen just like you. The command is to honor and respect and value the position of motherhood despite the performance of your mother. The text doesn't say, wait until your mother's worthy of honor. It's not what it says at all. It says, honor your mother. The dignity of motherhood deserves great honor regardless of how worthy or not worthy your mother is. You honor her position. You honor your mother. Also, there's a penalty for dishonoring your mother. Moses says in Deuteronomy 26, 27, 16, Cursed is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt. Contempt is the opposite of honor. And both honor and contempt are attitudes. Choosing to honor your mother is an attitude. It means that you honor her over uh, contempt regardless of her shortcomings, regardless of her imperfections. If you have a bad attitude towards your mom, you're going to have a hard time honoring her because unhealthy attitudes become unhealthy actions. Conversely, healthy attitudes become healthy actions. Honoring your mother also means to obey her. We see this often in Scripture where we're commanded to honor our mothers with obedience. In the book of Proverbs, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Therefore, obey the wisdom of your mother. Listen to the body of truth she teaches. Listen respectfully to your mother's advice and counsel and instruction. Give her your ears, your heart, and your obedience. You'll be honored. You'll be glad you honored your mother with obedience. Finally, honor your mother when she becomes a widow. 
Paul instructed the children and grandchildren to take care of their widowed mothers. He specifically commanded in 1 Timothy 5, 3-4, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. And here Paul used the same word honor in the context of discussing widows. So honor and value and cherish and take care of your mother when she becomes a widow. The time frame to honor your mother is right now. Don't wait until in your estimation she's worthy of honor. You honor her right now. She's your mother. Honor her position. Learn to take the commandment to honor your mother seriously. A healthy attitude about mom will translate into healthy actions. An attitude of honor, not of dishonor. Mothers, we honor you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of motherhood, the great calling to which, uh, which you have placed on mothers' lives, uh, the wonderful uh, plan that you have for each one of them, the plan that was conceived in your heart, in your mind, brought to fruition through creation. And Lord, despite the fact that we live in a fallen world, by your grace, through your mercy, through the filling of your Holy Spirit, uh, you enable Christian mothers to walk in faithfulness to the Word. We praise you for that. Lord, we take seriously this command, this charge to honor our mothers. Maybe difficult for some of us to do that. Lord, you know that full well. You see our heart and our mind. But Lord, we do pray that you would give us the right attitude. That whether or not we esteem our mother with honor or not, in our hearts you could produce a new fruit that would do a new thing that we could ascribe to you and all your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that mothers today could could rest in your blessing and rest in your pleasure. Lord, we thank you for them. We honor them. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. It will also be on the screens. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3. <coughs> my son, do not forget my law, but let your hearts keep my commands. For the length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. <clears throat> Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increases. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. 
my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. We're just going to sing the verses of the song, so if you grew up singing the chorus, just know this is just the verses today. that just doesn't matter. We hold on to money and to relationships that serve our needs. We hold on to our understanding. We hold on to stuff that doesn't even come close to equaling who you are. This is our prayer this morning that you would allow us to search our hearts and that the Spirit would reveal to us the things that we hold on to so dearly that we worship as idols and that you would free us from those things. God, this life is just a vapor. We know that. And so all the things we find important, God, let them pale in the light of you. As we sing this song, Father, to you, we pray that you would be glorified in us. And you would just be, you would envelop the praises of your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let's stand together and sing this song.
Works a little better when you turn it on. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Um, I almost, I was wondering if I'd forgotten how to preach through a book. It's been a while since I've preached through a book of the Bible. And so we're going to start sermon series this morning in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you would please turn there. Uh, 1 Timothy is near the back of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, you'll find a hardback black one somewhere around you. If you'll take that, turn to the back, find page 162. Uh, you'll be at 1 Timothy 1. We'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1 this morning. Um, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... According to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, 
for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Let's pray together. Righteous Father, we, we thank you for your inspired, uh, inerrant, infallible word. It is perfect, restoring the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. It is right, rejoicing the heart. It is pure, enlightening the eyes. It is true and righteous altogether. It is more desirable than the finest gold and the sweetest honey from the honeycomb. Through it you warn your servants, and through keeping it your servants find great reward. Lord, feed us with your word. Lord, lead us through your word. And do all this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we begin a new sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy. The title of this morning's sermon is Contending for the Faith. This sermon's title, its main point, and the three truths within it equip us to understand why Paul wrote Timothy concerning these things. In other words, we're going to hear the foundational truths about the church that grounded and guided Paul's ministry as an apostle. These truths are as important today as they were to the Apostle Paul, to Timothy, and to this church in Ephesus. Careful attention to them by us is as important to us as it was for Timothy. I start off this morning with the main point of quite possibly the entire book, but for sure the, the, the main point of this morning's sermon, it is this. We, when I say we, I'm talking about Christians. We have a received faith and not a conceived faith. A received faith, not a conceived faith. If you were to go through uh, and mark every instance of the word faith in the book of 1 Timothy, you'd find that it's mentioned a number of times to include this morning's text where it appears in verses 2 and 4 and 5. And in these three verses, the word faith is used not in the same way, but in three different ways. In verse 2, where Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, what he's talking about there is the doctrine of the church. True child according to the doctrine of the church that was preached to Timothy and by which he became a Christian. Verse 2, Paul uses the word faith in a different way. Nor to pay rise to, I'm sorry, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Here, the words by faith means, uh, it's talking about the means by which we apply the doctrine of the church that we believe. And then finally in verse 6, Paul says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside, I'm sorry, not verse 6, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In this particular instance, when Paul says the words a sincere faith, 
He's talking about the outcome of walking in the faith by faith. Walking in the doctrine of the church and applying it by faith. Sincere in other translations is also rendered as unhypocritical. So with regard to the main point of the text or the sermon, faith here this morning that I'm going to talk about um, indicates the doctrine of the church. So when I say we have a received faith, I'm talking about the doctrine of the church and it's received and not conceived. The reason I say that um, the main point of the text is uh, using the word faith with regard to the doctrine of the church is because Paul in this text is urging Timothy to stay on in Ephesus and to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he's certainly interested in doctrine. Now, I don't want to intend, I don't intend, just to be very clear, to create any sort of gap between faith in verse 2 and faith in verse 5 and faith in verse verse 4 and verse 5. These three uses of the word faith, they all hang or they all fall together. Let me illustrate. Sound doctrine, which is what Paul and Timothy are both concerned about, if it is unapplied, it's not a sincere faith. So you see there, there's belief, the belief of faith, the application of that doctrine by faith, and then the outcome is a sincere faith. So sound doctrine, unapplied, is not a sincere faith. Conversely, if you apply an unsound doctrine, that does not lead to a sincere faith. Only a believer who receives and believes sound doctrine, applies it by faith, truly possesses a sincere faith. Now, again, I'll say it. Sound doctrine is received. It's not conceived. We do not uh, come up with it on our own. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And he's talking about, the, uh, he received something about the Lord's Supper uh, from the Lord. So Paul is even himself saying sound doctrine is received. He's not making it up. However, there are certain men in the church. They're in Ephesus. And they're teaching strange doctrines. They are false teachings. And they're paying attention, as Paul says, to myths and endless genealogies. Now John MacArthur, trying to help understand what myths and endless genealogies are. He's talking about, um, according to John MacArthur, fanciful stories and legends that were manufactured. They were conceived from elements of Judaism, which probably dealt with allegorical or fictitious interpretations of the genealogies in the Old Testament. Verse 4, Paul indicates why this conceived faith is such a problem. He says that it gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So there's a problem. The sound doctrine is not just wrong teaching. people. It, it's causing problems in the church. It would be well of us to ask, who are these certain men to which Paul is alluding? 
Well, they're elders in the church. And elders, according to chapter 3 and verse Timothy, verse 2, they're presumed to be teachers of the law. Uh, They must be able to teach. And so these men here, these certain men, they presume to be teachers of the law. And elders must be able to teach. So uh, the implication there is that they are elders in the church. Furthermore, as we get through the book, you'll you'll notice in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, that Paul gives a list of qualifications for elders, perhaps even here implying that these men who were elders are not truly elder material. They don't meet the qualifications. Furthermore, in chapter 5, verses 19 through 22, Paul indicates that if there is an overseer, an elder that is sinning, they must be publicly disciplined. And Paul may here be referencing these men, these elders, who are spreading this false teaching. Paul, perhaps in a prophetic moment in Acts chapter 20, right before he leaves to go to Jerusalem to face um, what was coming ahead of him, gathers the elders from Ephesus, right before he boards the ship, He gives them this long speech. He prays with them. And one of the things he says, this is why I think, again, we're talking about elders propagating a conceived faith, not a received one. He says to these elders, Paul does, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now listen here. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. That word in is also translated from. In other words, Paul, perhaps in a prophetic moment, even realized that these elders who were so upset over his leaving would be the means by which God would bring false teaching into the church. So because these men were spreading a conceived faith and not a received faith, Paul instructs Timothy now to remain on in Ephesus in order to confront these false teachers and to return the church to what Jude 3 calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now Timothy is a trusted member of Paul's ministry team. He had received the faith, the doctrine of the church. He had believed the faith. He had become a Christian. He had applied the faith. More so, he was able to defend and to teach and to preserve the faith. He had suffered for the faith. And so it's to that faith now that we turn our attention. I want to share with you what I believe is kind of an underlying foundation for Paul's ministry. These three points, I believe, help us to see why Paul writes to Timothy in the way that he does. First of all, our faith is apostolic. Our faith is apostolic. The doctrine that we have as a church, is apostolic. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, allow me to expound. An apostle simply means someone who is sent. And more specifically, it talks about someone, it refers to someone who has been taught directly by Jesus and who is sent and invested with the, excuse me, the authority to speak on his behalf. In fact, Paul, in Romans 1, verse 1 indicates that he himself was called by Christ. An apostle is someone who spoke on behalf of Christ because they had been there with him. Second Peter, Peter himself, 
In verse, chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were there to see Him. We beheld it. Not only were they eyewitnesses, they were earwitnesses. They heard the teaching. In fact, when they passed it along, Paul notes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. An apostle was an eyewitness and an earwitness, and they spoke on behalf of God. And one of the key points we need to keep in mind is that this particular ministry that God gave through the apostles was one that allowed them to see in the Old Testament what saints and prophets of old were unable to see. Paul references this in Ephesians 3, 4 to 5. He says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. We need to understand this. When we say that this is apostolic doctrine, what Paul and the apostles did is not something separate from Old Testament Scripture. They're not creating new doctrine. No, what they are doing, on the contrary, is formulating doctrine grounded in the Old Testament Scriptures that's already there. It's New Testament doctrine. One way to to think about it is is this way, and I've heard it put this way before, and I think it's helpful. The, The New Testament is in the Old Testament Concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So that helps us to understand that these men who are apostles, who are giving us doctrine, they're not making up new doctrine. They're looking at the Old Testament and under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeing Christ there because He was always there. Therefore, because that's the only scriptures they had to work from. They they don't have the New Testament to work from. So God is using them to point to Christ. It's also important for us to understand that there are no longer any apostles in the church. There are denominations that will say that there are apostles these days. I believe they're wrong. And the reason I say this is because, let me read Ephesians 2 verse 20. It says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is talking about... The building of the church. And at some point, when you've got the foundation laid, you begin to build, right? Because there's no longer any reason to lay any more foundation. The foundation has been laid through the apostolic doctrine, which is recorded for us in Scripture. That's New Testament. There's no longer any apostles in the church because we have apostolic doctrine that they didn't make up, that they received from the Lord by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking at the Old Testament. And because we have the New Testament and the Old, 66 books complete in and of themselves, there's no more need for apostles. We have the words. So our faith is apostolic. Secondly, our faith is 
authoritative. I failed to mention in verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, in the first point, that it does say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior. But secondly, our faith is authoritative. It's authoritative. Christian doctrine, and, and this is... Uh, There's certainly some squabble over this in the public square. To say that Christian doctrine has divine authority to define sin. See, Paul, look down in verse 9. He says that the law is not for a righteous person. It's for the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers or mothers. For murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul is not making up new sins. These, if you go back and look at them, you'll find that there's a close connection between all of these sins and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments and Christian doctrine has divine authority to indicate, to define sin. Not only will it define sin, our faith has the authority to confront sin. Look again in verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are, and then he goes on with his list. See, law is, has a different role in the life of a Christian than it does for someone who is not a believer. Someone who is not a believer needs to be confronted with the inerrant, infallible, unchanging Word of God, especially His law, as it holds a mirror up to them and demonstrates that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, Christians, we look at the law differently. Christ Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Still, it's applicable to both applicable to us because it's still against God's law to murder and to commit adultery and so on and so on. But our faith is authoritative to define sin and to confront sin using the law, using the doctrine that's been handed down to us. Also, having confronted a person with their sin, our faith is authoritative to offer the gospel to sinners. Look at verse 11. Paul mentions that he's been entrusted with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's his whole ministry, is to share the gospel with people. And he doesn't just cut to the chase about you can have Jesus as your Savior if you want Him today. Paul would preach the whole gospel, the law, convicting sinners of their sin, calling them to believe in Jesus Christ. Our faith is authoritative in calling believers to holiness. In verse 8, Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And again, I I mentioned that there's a right way and a wrong way to use the law, and it depends on who it applies to. For us as Christians, the law calls us to holiness. It holds up to us the righteous and holy standard of God, not so that we can try to achieve it for our own salvation, but to walk in it because we have been saved and we want to bring glory and honor to our God. Our faith is authoritative in governing Christ's church. I want you to look again in verses 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. 
nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. See, Timothy was sent as an apostolic delegate to that church with the authority given, one by Paul as an apostle too, because of the doctrine that had been revealed to Paul, passed down to Timothy, which he had received, believed, was applying, he had suffered for, he'd been in prison for it, and he was sent with authority to govern this church. Now, I want you to understand something, and I may have spoke, misspoken there, and I don't intend to. Um, Timothy is not the pastor of this church. He is not an elder of this church. So this is an, an unusual situation where Paul the Apostle sends Timothy to this church with the apostolic authority that Paul possesses saying, stop doing this. But the faith that Paul had received, Paul is using in order to give Timothy, to send him with this kind of authority, in order that the church might come under the right sort of government. Next, our faith is authoritative for establishing the goals of the church. Verse 4, Paul says, that these men are not supposed to pay attention to myths and endless, endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. It's, it's, it's getting people off the way rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. The goal, one of the goals of the church is to further the kingdom. And that's been translated in other translations as um, the, the redemptive plan of God. In other words, the church has a mission. I'll say it this way. The mission has a church. We're not at liberty to change what our mission is. Our mission is to further the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of right doctrine, through calling Christians to holiness, through building up believers. That's one of the goals of the church. Paul says in verse 5, But the goal of our instruction... The apostolic doctrine that Paul is passing along, the goal of that instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So our faith, the doctrine that has been handed down to us, that we didn't come up with, it's apostolic, it's authoritative, and finally, it's aimed at preservation. It's aimed at preservation. Paul and the writers of Scripture would have no such notion in their mind as some people today that our Constitution is a living document. It's like a wax nose that you can just bend it and tweak it whichever way you'd like. That is not how Paul viewed Scripture. To him, it's not a living document. Apostolic doctrine is not something that Paul would say progressive Christianity could change and morph this doctrine along with the times and the winds and the waves of culture and society. It's aimed at preserving what has been handed down. It's aimed at preserving doctrine. Notice again in verse 3, Paul mentions, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. He wants to preserve true doctrine. And he goes on to say in verse 4 about the myths and endless genealogies which are detracting from the true apostolic doctrine. He says in verse 6 that this is uh, turning these people aside to fruitless discussion. 
Our faith is aimed at preserving doctrine, but then also our faith is aimed at preserving the gospel. Paul says again in verse 12, he mentions the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's not been given a writing assignment. Here's a prompt, a little bit of something about the gospel. Now you make the rest up. It's not how Paul understands that. He understands that the gospel has been entrusted to him for safekeeping. Our faith is aimed at preserving practice. Again, Paul says what the goal of our instruction is. It's behavior. It's it's character change. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and uh, a sincere faith. Our faith is aimed at preserving church health. Again, in verse 4, he talks about how these myths and endless genealogies give rise to mere speculation. The church, when it is not focused on its mission and gets off track looking at things that don't matter, in fact are false teachings, false doctrines, then it has an implication, an impact on the church's health. Our faith is aimed at preserving the church's calling. Again, Paul says in verse 4, that these myths and endless genealogies give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, the redemptive plan which the church has received. And our faith is aimed at preservation through the gifts and offices that God has given to the church, specifically in terms of oversight. Now, in this text, Paul, the apostle, is exercising apostolic oversight over this church in Ephesus. He has sent an an apostolic delegate, Timothy, his child, true child in the faith, he says. And then he's addressing those in the church at Ephesus who have direct oversight over the people of God there. And one of the ways that our faith is preserved is through God gifting the church with oversight through elders. Again, there are no more apostles Oversight these days is now given to the elders. They're also called overseers in in this letter to Timothy. And they function under the authority of the apostolic faith that has been revealed to us. So I think you can see here, if an elder must be able to teach, then it is crucial that we get the right teachers standing before us, not conceiving of a faith, but preaching and teaching and leading people to apply a received faith. Our received faith, it's apostolic, it's authoritative, it's aimed at preservation. But a received faith on its own must turn into a believed faith. Some people have said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Nope. Nope. God said it. That settles it. Now believe it. You see, we have received a doctrine. And it's the onus on us is to take what we have received and believe it. Not only should we believe it, we should apply it. An applied faith. It's what Paul's goal is in his instruction. An applied faith. Reminding us, sound doctrine unapplied does not result in a genuine faith. And so my goal 
for us, for this sermon series, is Paul's same goal in verse 5. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. May God's word not return void. May we receive in humility the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are your people. We didn't create ourselves. You called us to yourself. We are the sheep of your pasture. We praise you that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We see your rod and your staff to comfort us as you lead us and guide us by these paths of righteousness. And we know that you have given your people everything necessary for life and godliness because you're a good God. So we pray, God, keep us from straying from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, deepen our trust in what we have received and give us a greater desire to walk faithfully in the faith that we have received. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand at this time. We're going to have a time of response. Um, This time is for you and the Lord, uh, for you to do anything in this moment that that the Lord has called you to do, uh, to do it with boldness and courage, knowing that He's the one that's called you, knowing that the church will celebrate you, and, and if you need to come forward, they'll celebrate you for what you're coming forward for. So we... We had this time for for the Lord, for you and the Lord to do business, and you do so as, as you see fit. just a moment. I don't really have much in the way of uh, prayer updates to pass along. Um, You you might notice a new addition to the list, Nancy Donahue. If I understand right, um, her husband was once pastor here going on a mission trip and just asked for prayer from the church. Do you know where she's going? Guatemala. Guatemala. Okay. So pray for Nancy Donahue. When is that trip? Do you know? 12th through the 16th. Thank you much. I'm also, you may have gotten an email from Sue about Sylvia Acuff. She was involved in a car wreck. Sue, do you have any update on Sylvia? Okay, because she did uh, have a neck fracture. Okay, they did surgery on her, and so she's able to move fingers now. Any other updates? Anyone have an update to anything on our list or something that you would just like to ask for prayer for? Okay, Ricky A. Strike family, uh, oldest son, age 37, passed away. Um, Hank.
paint a stripe. Okay. Anyone else? Well, I do want to um, just remind you, take this home with you, look at it periodically during the week, lift these folks up in prayer. That's why we have this prayer list, so we can be involved in each other's lives. Um, not in a nosy way, but in a way that God calls us to, to, to love each other enough to pray for each other. Uh, so, so please do that. Um, I do want to, just because um, we've had an eventful week in our country, um, and there is a, a great possibility of something happening in our country that I don't know that I would have ever seen in my lifetime, that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Uh, and I know that this is a, a source of great contention in our country. And, and I want to pray um, for, for our country, uh, for, for the church, and for safety for our Supreme Court justices um, because don't know how it's going to go. It could, it could get really ugly. Um, so I would ask that you please stand. Join me in this prayer. Then we'll say the Great Commission together and we'll be dismissed. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that the scriptures tell us very plainly. Uh, that you knit each and every one of us together in our mother's womb and that uh, you know us full well. And that is true not only of us, but of every human being who has ever, ever been conceived. We know, Lord, that since 1973, Roe v. Wade has devalued uh, the life of children in our country, uh, elevating um, other concerns uh, over the beauty and glory of your creation. Lord, we, we, we thank you that the early indications are that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. And we pray that that would indeed be the case. Lord, we pray for Congress. Um, know that there are various efforts in Congress to try to codify a right to abortion into federal law, we pray, God, that you would uh, thwart every effort of the enemy, that these efforts to, to code this, codify this into law would, would not succeed. Uh, we do pray, in fact, Lord, that these justices have, have overturned this law. We pray for their safety right now as it has not been, the, the, the verdict has not, in the case has not been released yet, and so we pray that you would indeed protect each and every one of them. Um, give them safety. And Lord, we pray <clears throat> for the church in America. Lord, I'm not talking about the progressive church. I'm talking about the church that, that loves women and loves babies and wants to see both of them walk in uh, the plan that you have for them. And I pray that, that um, if it is indeed your will that Roe versus Wade is overturned and, and we uh, see a new dawn in our country, that you would equip us as a church uh, to keep doing what in many ways we have already been doing, uh, taking care of pregnant women and of orphan children, giving them uh, what they need in their time of need, coming alongside them, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with them, that they might hear that there's good news about their sin. Lord, for those that have, at some point in their life, ever had an abortion. I pray that in all of this um, hubbub that's going on in our country, that you would use this in their life for your glory and their good, that they would not see, um, that they would be 
able to see that Christ Jesus can forgive this sin, heal their heart, and remove their shame. That He can do something new in them if they will but turn to Him. Lord, I thank You for hearing our prayer. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's say the Great Commission together will be dismissed. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.